Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Coming up later this half hour, we'll have um, Harvest Public Media's Jonathan All. Uh, he'll tell us how a divided Congress next year in 2023 may shape the new farm bill or not. Uh, next uh, In the next half hour, later in the hour, I mean to say, IPR's Kendall Crawford will talk about the Spirit Lake School District and their decision to arm non-teaching staff. Also later, Jim Coffey of the Iowa DNR uh, will talk about Iowa's wild turkey population, how it's gone up and down. Tony Daner grooves us into the weekend at the very end of the hour. But first... We've got to go to this news that broke late last night. Bad news for the backers of the Iowa caucuses. An announcement by party officials at a dinner in Washington signaling the end of Iowa's long tradition as the Democrats' first nominating contest. Now, President Biden and the Democratic National Committee moving to radically reorder the party's presidential process. According to this plan, in 2024, South Carolina, South Carolina, not Iowa, would be the first primary state, followed by Nevada, New Hampshire, Georgia, then Michigan. Clay Masters joins me now. He's been up late. He's our IPR lead political reporter, of course, host of Morning Edition. Hi, Clay. Hey, good afternoon, Ben. <laughs> good afternoon to you. Members of the DNC, you've been reporting on this, are in Washington to rework how the Democratic Party kicks off primaries. Tell us more about the dramatic news of late yesterday. Well, this is kind of the culmination of an entire year. I mean, I think listeners of this show will remember me coming on now and again to remind them that this is something that the Democratic National Committee Rules and Bylaws Committee, which is a mouthful, has been working on this entire year to rework it. They've been saying they want to favor primaries over caucuses. They want more diverse states going early. And they also want more competitive states in general elections going early. And the one person that this committee had been waiting on weighing in this whole time, President Joe Biden, finally said something. I mean, these are people that are appointed to the DNC that are, uh, you know, favorable of the president. That's why they serve on the committee. Uh, Jamie Harrison, the chair of the Democratic Party National Committee uh, from South Carolina, uh, he was very happy this as he was starting this meeting where all of these people were sitting around that have been having these conversations. You know, there were 16 states in Puerto Rico out in Washington, D.C. that I covered making their formal pitch. And yeah, last night uh, it was first reported in the Washington Post. I got confirmation uh, from a member of the DNC Rules and Bylaws Committee that the order that you said at the outset of this conversation is what the president has proposed, and uh, that was what was talked about in their first session of these two-day meetings that kicked off this morning in Washington, D.C. at a hotel room. Clay, or a hotel it. ballroom. It's not just crammed into one hotel room. That, was <laughs> that would be an image. All right, in the ballroom, in the hotel. What is the stated goal of this radical change? Um, what's, behind, what's Biden's thinking and the others who support that? Well, the, the president laid it all out in a letter that he sent to the Rules and Bylaws Committee. I got a copy of this last night. Um, bullet point number one, you know, saying we must ensure that voters of color have a voice in choosing our nominee much earlier in the process and throughout the entire early window. 
Um, he says, too often over the past 50 years, candidates have dropped out or had their candidates marginalized by the press and pundits because of poor performances in small states early in the process before voters of color cast a vote. I mean, that 50 years seems like kind of a jab right there at Iowa. Uh, he also said that our party should no longer allow caucuses as part of the nomination process. We are a party dedicated to ensuring participation by all voters and for removing barriers to political participation. So caucuses, he said, requires voters to choose in public, spend significant amounts of time to caucus, and then disadvantages uh, workers, he says, and anyone who does not have flexibility to go to a set location at a set time. Uh, part of the proposal that the Iowa Democrats pitched back in June to the Rules and Bylaws Committee was that they're completely reworking the caucuses. You guys have talked about it on this show mm -hmm. even earlier this week on Politics Wednesday. Uh, the point there is that you would be sending in presidential preference cards so you wouldn't have these realignments. And so caucus night itself, it'd be kind of like a vote by mail, but it's, uh, you know, presidential preference cards. They'd be counted up on caucus night. You'd have a winner. But uh, that was something, too, that uh, Scott Brennan, who is the only uh, Iowan who's on the Rules and Bylaws Committee, that's something he stressed as he t spoke to the group this morning, saying that he could not back this proposal. I believe we have some sound here that we'll hear. I have the deepest respect for the president and his principles, but the characterization of caucuses set forth in his letter did not reflect any acknowledgement of the historic changes we proposed to the Iowa caucuses. We recognize that the caucuses as they were no longer aligned with 21st century democracy and that we had no alternative but to reimagine the Iowa caucuses as a vote by mail state party run event. And still we received no consideration. Hmm. Okay, Clay. So uh, talk a little bit. I'm looking back at the order that I we, we talked about right at the outset of this conversation. It puts it still dethrones Iowa, Biden's plan as number one, um, put South Carolina there. But New Hampshire is, is second. What's the thinking behind keeping New Hampshire in its traditional second position? It's as homogeneous and white as Iowa, right? And small. Yeah. And also, you know, New Hampshire and Nevada have the Democrats in New Hampshire and in Nevada have been uh, fighting all year, both wanting to be the first primary. And last night, actually, he's the former Iowa Democratic Party chair is now the executive director of the New Hampshire Democrats, Troy Price. Uh, he issued a tweet last night that said the DNC did not give New Hampshire the primary and they can't take it away, indicating that, you know, they would still possibly go forward with a first in the nation primary, no matter what other state goes early. And there was kind of a, a polite reference to that from the uh, person from New Hampshire who sits on that DNC committee this morning. So you're already seeing in this first session this morning, you know, there's a lot of celebration among the people in the room who are saying, you know, this represents the party, the Democratic Party saying this represents America. But at the same time, too, you're kind of seeing Scott Brennan definitely had the sharpest criticism for the mm -hmm. window because he's Iowa's out of that early window. But you're seeing s some of these conversations take shape. And so they're breaking for lunch right now. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, it'll be interesting to see if, uh, I don't know, a little bit more in their bellies brings out more fire, too. But it, it, it seems to me that they're going to have to come up with something they can't have met all year gotten this recommendation from the president and then not changed anything. I mean, something is going to come out of this. And if it has the president's blessing, I mean, they're going to want to, to move forward with this. But, you know, as you, we've talked about, too, throughout the year, 
This does not change anything for the Republicans. Uh, Jeff Kaufman, I talked to yesterday, the Republican Party of Iowa chairman, who uh, assured me that the Republicans in this state will have the first caucus leading off the 2024 nominating cycle. Yeah, and I, I noticed uh, Jeff Kaufman releasing a, um, a quote this morning, an uh, email landed in my box, uh, the Iowa, uh, the GOP Republican Party of Iowa chairman, Jeff Kaufman. Here's his quote. This is an unserious alternative from an unserious president. The DNC and Joe Biden have just kicked off utter chaos. This is just a recommendation, and the fight is not over. There, you know, this is this is the, a Republican leader in Iowa teaming up with Iowa on the same side. This is a strange bedfellows, but there you have it, right, Clay? Yeah, I mean, this is also the one thing that, uh, and people could argue about whether or not you know the validity of of the the caucuses kicking things off for the Democrats is you know you could argue over whether or not Iowa should be there, but. The Iowa Democratic Party and the Republican Party of Iowa, that's the one thing that they sing kumbaya over and <laughs> regularly come out in support over. Um, so it's not surprising. It, it, it is kind of amusing to watch that juxtaposition of, you know, uh, saying negative things about the national party, but supporting the local party. So I don't know. It, it's uh, it's a fight that we're going to keep seeing move forward. But I mean, the, the recommendation from the president is yeah. is a pretty strong one. I mean, as we know, that's the recommendation from former President Obama and how he saw Iowa as launching his career helped keep the caucuses for the Democrats in Iowa for a couple more years. And this might be the end of the road. It's kind of looking that way. Yeah, right. But there's another lens you can view this through, um, just purely political, focused around Biden. Biden came in fourth in Iowa. He limped out of New Hampshire after placing fifth there. And then there was this near miraculous save by uh, well, black voters in, in South Carolina um, to put him back in the race. So it's being viewed through that lens, too, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. And another thing that uh, wasn't a part of the clip that we played there that Scott Brennan pointed out, which I think is kind of one of the, the better points that the people that want to keep the Iowa Democratic caucuses first or in the early window, is that now you have included Michigan and Georgia and those are two very large states and expensive states. And Scott Brennan said, you know, these favor front runners or vanity candidates, people that can blanket advertisements in these more expensive media markets. Think of Atlanta. Think of uh, Detroit. Uh, much cheaper to run in a state like Iowa. And that's the point that uh, he was making. And that, again, I, I feel like is one of those points that it wasn't hit as much early on in the process for the Iowa Democrats. Um, but it is one to take note of as you know, you start seeing campaigns take shape moving forward. Okay, thank you very much. Clay Masters, IPR's lead political reporter on this. Uh, once again, the president um, and the Democratic National Committee moving to radically reorder the party's presidential process. Uh, this is concerning the Democratic Party, not the Republican Party, but still pretty earth-shaking uh, news for a 50-year tradition. Clay, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Ben. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Now, regardless of that U.S. Senate runoff in Georgia, we're looking at a divided Congress next year in 2023 when Republicans will assume control of the U.S. House and Democrats maintaining that ever so narrow control of the agenda in the U.S. Senate. Now, that divided Congress will have to tackle a new farm bill. 
Jonathan All is with us. He's a correspondent for St. Louis Public Radio and Harvest Public Media. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for for joining us. Uh, You've been reporting on, well, from our vantage point here at the end of 2022, how this new farm bill may be shaped by the divided Congress to come. Before we get into that, this is massive legislation renewed every five years, usually. Remind us about the key parts of the farm bill. Well, probably the biggest part of the farm bill arguably has very little to do with farming at all, and that's the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP. This is the program that uh, replaced food stamps years and years ago, and it is the biggest, financially, the biggest part of the bill. So this is uh, how it's determined who gets benefits, how much the benefits are, how they are implemented, and that is an enormous part of this bill uh, that that really does uh, affect the largest number of Americans. But it is still called the Farm Bill. So this is where we also have everything uh, pertaining to crops and how we grow things, uh, how crop insurance is set, uh, price protection issues, uh, trade issues, uh, almost everything that has to do with commodities, that is also in this bill. So those are the two biggest portions of it. There are also some other s- small things. We are talking about something that'll be a half a trillion dollars when it's all said and done. And it, it it's really an enormous, enormous piece of legislation. What can be said now as we enter the final month of 2022 about how the split control in Congress may shape the farm bill? Oddly, it won't have that much of an impact because the farm bill is so big and sprawling and and massive that it ends up being a weird coalition of a lot of different groups who are all trying to get their own thing in it. So it's it's never been a, a, there's never been explicitly a Republican farm bill and a Democrat farm bill. It's really been more like various interests all wanting to make sure that they get what they want out of it. Um, Obviously, people who uh, are lobbying for SNAP benefits, that's one in big faction of it. But then even on the commodity side, like, uh, you know, cotton farmers will all be banding together to try to get what they want. And then corn and bean farmers will be looking for what they want. And then, you know, uh, nut farmers and citrus growers and all of the different uh, factions of American agriculture will all be lobbying for what they want and positioning for things. So it really ends up being coalitions that almost have nothing to do with party and have much more to do with regionalism or, or interests. So the fact that the House and the Senate will be divided in the grand scheme of things probably won't have that much influence on what ends up in the Farm Bill. Jonathan, let me toss a, a few news developments within the last year that may shape the farm bill coming up and 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 see what you have to say there. Of course, uh, we've been suffering across the country from inflation, the impact of higher prices, also especially felt in the ag industry. How might that shape it or will it? Well, it it, it definitely will, because the, the, the general idea is never let a good crisis go to waste. And <laughs> yeah. um, everyone will be pointing at inflation and talking about how that is the de- that's the evidence that they need what they want in the farm bill. A lot of the price controls and a lot of the crop insurance things, they inflation is factored into the equation of how some of those protections are put forth. So 
you know, it, it shouldn't have that big a deal. But trust me, farmers will say, look, we're paying more for fertilizer. We're paying more for this. We're paying more for that. Our barges can't get down the Mississippi River because it's, you know. So they will point to all of those problems and they will say that is why we need better, you know, protections, why we need more affordable crop insurance. Those will definitely play in. But it's not like inflation specifically hits some portion of the farm bill disproportionately than others, but that won't make the lobbyists see it that way, and they will continue to use that as the the cudgel they need to get what they want. <laughs> right, and, and tied to inflation, of course, um, uh, one of the chief reasons we have inflation around the world, and especially in the ag sector, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Ukraine, a major ag producer in the world, changing the global commodities picture by not being able to produce what it has in past. Anything specific to the Ukrainian war? Well, I think that that really where the U.S. farmers have probably felt that most is in fertilizer prices. And I think that you will see that as, again, a lobbying tool to try to get more out of the farm bill. Whether that'll actually happen, you know, it's hard to say because the economy can change quite a bit between now and six, seven, eight months from now when this might end up happening. So, you know, when the the renewal would happen. So, you know, I... Yes, people will definitely say that that is evidence, but whether that will actually mean anything, it's it's hard to know just yet. I want to ask you about climate change to finish up, but before I do that, you know, you made the point that this the farm bill is unique and sprawling, huge, and doesn't necessarily break down along party lines in terms of what you're in favor of or not. What can what sense can you give us of of the debates you're you're sensing that will happen either in the area of commodities and crop insurance or, or, or SNAP, where will where will the spectrum of debates go there? Well, okay, so here's one uh, thing that, that is kind of peeking its nose under the tent uh, in terms of SNAP that I think is definitely something to watch. There are a lot of advocates are talking about putting a work requirement uh, along with receiving SNAP benefits. Um, I don't think that's going to go very far, but it's definitely going to be something that will be debated. And I think more conservative members of Congress will be pushing for that even more. And I think their feeling on this is twofold. First of all, they are under the belief that if you are going to get some kind of assistance that you need to do something for it, which, you know, arguably is that really the point of assistance or not. The other thing is there are, there's a big perception that a lot of low paying jobs in the United States are not being filled because people just don't want to work. Again, that is a very debatable point whether that's true or not. But I think the push will be, look, there are, you know, everybody's got a help wanted sign out front. Nobody's applying for these jobs. So we need to make the people who are getting SNAP benefits at least work a little bit. That is something that will probably come up. Whether it has legs, I, I, I doubt that will happen, but you, you're definitely going to hear more about that. On the crop side, I think you're going to hear farmers want more. They want more protections. They want more price protections. They want more disaster recovery aid, and they want cheaper crop insurance. And that is definitely something that they're going to push for regardless of uh, of what they grow and where they grow it. Jonathan, we've had numerous conversations on this program about climate change, uh, the growing recognition of how it's changing our world. Um, We'll see how climate change may be stemmed, to what degree, but it's certainly having a huge impact on the ag sector. And the ag sector, depending on how it changes, can, can do a lot to shape climate change in the future or stem it. How will that shape this coming farm bill? And and I'm curious, 
Is this perhaps the first farm bill that will take climate change into effect? Well, oddly enough, climate change was included in a farm bill in the 90s in a very low level. Um, And then it was kind of stripped out for the next uh, few farm bills. So it's it wouldn't be the very first, but definitely advocates for uh, climate change uh, mitigation issues are going to go full court press to try to get that in the farm bill. That's the one issue where there is still some partisanism, for sure. Republicans are much less interested in doing things that address climate change than Democrats are. But even then, how much is going to make it in there? How much stuff promoting regenerative and sustainable agriculture programs, how much is that going to get in there? And this is a good way to kind of get that in a bill, even when there is some people who will uh, oppose it. For example, so let's take your delegation in Iowa. There will be four Republicans uh, representing Iowa in the House. None of them are big climate change advocates, uh, mitigation advocates, but all four of them will definitely vote to help corn and soybean farmers. So if the final bill that makes it through the process has some climate change mitigation issues in it that those four Republicans wouldn't vote for, but does have what the corn and bean farmers want, they're going to vote for it. And add to that, I know you have this in your reporting, and it's very interesting for us to realize that, you know, farming, our practices on the farm have a lot to do with the amount of um, emissions mm-hmm. the num- uh, that that come out and, and go into our atmosphere. Describe that a little bit, because there's really a big lever that can be put one way or another to determine how many emissions go into the atmosphere. 25% of all greenhouse gas emissions uh, come from agriculture, according to the U.S. EPA. Um, and, and so how we farm, what we farm, where we farm it, All of those things have a huge impact on climate change. So it's definitely a target of an industry that can do some things to lower those greenhouse gases that are that are going out there. And and some of those things are well known. Some of them are in the experimental phase. So, yeah, there's definitely an opportunity to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by changing farming. Really, what I think advocates want are a wholesale change of farming. They want to dramatically change the way that we farm. That's not going to happen in one farm bill, but there could be moves in that direction, incentivizing things that are better stewards of the soil, incentivizing things that use less fuel, incentivizing things that, you know, start moving towards perennial crops instead of annuals. Those are all things that could start to get some motion in this farm bill. Okay, we'll keep an eye on it. What the new divided Congress in 2023 will do with a new farm bill. Jonathan All, thank you for setting the scene for us. Correspondent for St. Louis Public Radio and Harvest Public Media. Jonathan, take care. Until next time. Thank you. Coming up, IPR's Kendall Crawford on how the Northwest Iowa community of Spirit Lake has given the green light to arming non-teaching staff in their schools. Jim Coffey of the Iowa DNR tells us about the ups and downs of Iowa's wild turkey population, and we groove into the weekend with Tony Daner. I'm Ben Kiefer, back with your Friday News Buzz after a short break. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. 
Support for IPR comes from Patrick Fury Law, a business law firm offering technology agreements, intellectual property law, privacy law, and more. Proudly supporting quality local journalism. Online at patrickfurylaw.com. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River. From IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer. This week, the Spirit Lake Community School District, uh, that's in northwest Iowa, voted to finalize plans to allow 10 non-teaching staff members to be armed, to be armed in schools. IPR's Kendall Crawford has been covering this story. Hi, Kendall. Hi, Ben. I know you've been reporting on this for a while. Give us some context for the vote this week. What allows some school staff to be armed in this case? Yeah, so actually, if you look at Iowa Code 724.4, it allows school districts to regulate armed personnel on school grounds. And so that kind of paved the way for this emergency preparedness plan to be added. Uh, So the Spirit Lake Community Schools District first introduced this uh, two days before school started in August and have since then been kind of revising this, taking an input from the community uh, and kind of ended up with this plan, which is, like you said, to authorize 10 staff members who are not teachers and who are not bus drivers to be able to be armed on campus. And really the thought behind that is um, it's a response to school shootings across the nation. Uh, The superintendent, David Smith, has says he wants to be prepared for that kind of situation and to not have to wait for law enforcement to arrive to be able to address the issue. Uh, so they're moving forward with this plan. Uh, they're going to have 10 staff members, 15 staff have already kind of undergone some of the training processes, um, uh, but they're going to keep the names of those authorized individuals anonymous. Uh, the district says that'll be for their safety, uh, but they will have to do training and a mental health screening in order to become one of the selected staff members. Kendall, tell us a little bit uh, what you know about what the debate has been like on this issue in in Spirit Lake. Uh, How controversial is it? So there's definitely been discussion around this policy, and and some parents expressed that they felt a bit blindsided by it and, and that they really felt like more guns didn't belong in schools. They didn't want to see guns at the educational institutions. Uh, Some parents came up at this public hearing that I went to on Monday, and they really urged for an investment in school resource officers or mental health programs rather than um, having this policy. But Also at the public hearing, there were definitely a lot of parents and faculty members who came out in favor of the policy. A lot of them thanked the district for taking action. Uh, They expressed that they feel their children's lives are safer under this policy and that school shootings are a scary reality that some educators and families are thinking about and one that they don't really feel the district is prepared for at this time uh, without this new emergency preparedness plan. The district actually did a survey as well to gauge public comment, and the majority of the there around 200 of them were actually in favor of the policy. Mm. Okay, and I understand, though, that the local police chief there in Spirit Lake came out against this new policy. Yes, the local police chief, Shane Brevik, actually issued a statement a couple weeks before this final public meeting criticizing the policy, and he called it an unworkable solution. 
Basically, he kind of argued that he didn't think staff members could be trained to deal with the intense high pressure active shooter situation in 40 hours, which is what the, the training hours dictates in the emergency preparedness plan. Um, but there's been a back and forth between him and the superintendent, David Smith. Uh, he claim Smith claims that there were no concerns raised to him prior to the press release, um, and is really kind of emphasizing the point that he has the support of a lot of other law enforcement in the community. So the district ultimately decided to move forward without his approval. They took in some of his comments and they adjusted the policy a little bit, but uh, district officials will still be collaborating with police Shane Brevik on this uh, in the future. Uh, Kendall, you mentioned training. What what else can you tell us about the training these non-teaching staff uh, have undergone, are undergoing, uh, to be able to to carry out these extra responsibilities armed? Yeah, so the district is really trying to make their training mirror what law enforcement has to undergo. So right now there's the 40 hours weapons class, like I mentioned. They're going to take a permit to carry class. They're going to have marksmanship training. I believe it was around 900 rounds. Uh, they'll train in weapon retention, tactical training, uh, really learning how to enter a room, how to clear a room in an active shooter situation, as well as kind of um, medical training to go along with that. So they'll have uh, the Stop the Bleed certification in first aid. Um, and again, there's also an emphasis that before anyone can really be authorized they will have to undergo a background check and an in-person mental health screening. You mentioned um, how parents have come down on both sides of this issue in Spirit Lake. Uh, what can you tell us about teachers? Are, are they in favor or also sort of divided? Yeah, so the survey that they took, really the majority of the staff who did respond said that they were in favor of it. And a, quite a few teachers actually came to the meeting on Monday to express their support, saying they feel safer in the classroom, that they were really grateful to have people in the district who were willing to put their lives at risk for their children. Um, and so uh, I believe it was just one staff member or teacher, um, according to the survey, that actually said that they were opposed. Now, not everyone had to fill out the survey so that there could be other other voices that were missing. But for those that did participate, it was an overwhelming yes to this policy. Mm -hmm. Kendall, what can, you, what can you tell us about how unique this is in Iowa, in Iowa school district, uh, having some non-teaching staff members armed? How unique in Iowa? How unique in the country? Yeah, it, it's pretty unique. In Iowa, when they first announced it in August, Spirit Lake was the first district to kind of really spearhead this policy. And since they announced it in August, uh, Cherokee School District in Northwest Iowa has actually approved a similar policy. They haven't put a cap on the number of staff members that could be authorized, but they're actually using the same firearms instruction training sessions that Spirit Lake is using. In the country, there, there are other states that allow guns in the classroom. Um, similar policies have been adopted in states like Florida, Texas, Ohio. And and so this isn't, you know, the first in the nation by by any means. But for Ohio, for Iowa, we're really seeing it as the, the first district to really implement a policy like this. Okay, we'll see if other Iowa communities, school districts in Iowa, 
follow suit uh, after um, uh, this vote uh, this week. Um, Kendall talking about uh, a vote this week in the northwest Iowa community of Spirit Lake voting to finalize plans to allow 10 non-teaching staff members to be armed in schools. Kendall Crawford, IPR's Western Iowa reporter, thank you so much. Thanks, Ben. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Have you ever had an encounter with a wild turkey? Well, I've certainly seen them plenty of times, but it was just a few weeks ago. I was rather surprised that on my bicycle commute home from the studio to my home, um, I, I, I commute nearly every day on a dedicated bike path. Uh, right in front of me, all of a sudden, a wild turkey right on the path. And this is pretty much in the middle of town. And, uh, well, he, she, it went into the brush, and I went on my way. No big encounter there. Wild turkeys are now very common in Iowa. Uh, you may recall they made the headlines earlier this year when um, it was for a few months some territorial toms uh, held up some traffic in West Des Moines, showed some aggressive behavior toward pedestrians who, I guess, had the nerve to get near them. And perhaps you've had your own encounter with a wild turkey. It wasn't that long ago, though, that wild turkeys were nearly extinct here and in other parts of the U.S. With that in mind, let's talk with Jim Coffey. He's a member of the Iowa DNR Wildlife Research Staff. Uh, He specializes in turkeys as well as deer and uh, other forest wildlife. Hi, Jim. Good afternoon. Are we having a resurgence in wild turkeys in recent years? Well, it depends on, on your definition of recent years. So in, in modern times, yes. But in the very few recent years, we've actually seen a decline in the population, which has us a little bit concerned. Well, well, well let's go back to uh, when the population was really at a low level and then walk us forward from there. Where, where were they nearly extinct? When? So actually, they were completely extirpated from Iowa about 1910. The last documented wild turkey was seen in Lucas County in, in the uh, late 1910. And then we did not have wild turkeys on the Iowa landscape until the mid-1960s. So almost 50 years with the, with the wild turkey, which is a native species, was, was absent from our landscape. And they were intentionally reintroduced? They were. They were. So in the 1960s, um, as a lot of states, Iowa participated, they decided that these were a native species that should be available on the landscape for for people to to see and enjoy. And so an effort was taken to trap and transfer turkeys from viable populations in other states and move them back um, across historic ranges. And Iowa was pretty instrumental in that process. Mm-hmm. Okay, so walk us a little further on this uh, timeline. After the reintroduction, their population grows steadily, or, or what happens? Well, it, so we were happy in the 1960s to get a few turkeys back in Iowa. And, and early turkey biologists, which there were none, thought that turkeys had to have big expanses of, of forest habitat. And Iowa is not known for its forest habitat. So we thought those turkey populations would only survive in our state forests. So Stevens State Forest, Chimic State Forest, Yellow River State Forest. So we tried reintroductions into those areas. And some turkeys from um, that we got from Missouri, which is the eastern subspecies, which is the species that was native to Iowa, um, did well in, in Chimic Forest. And from that population, we started to trap and transfer internally. And then we spread those turkeys out to viable habitats, and now today we have turkeys in all 99 Iowa counties. 
All right. Uh, And the height of their population in the state, you mentioned a recent decrease, but uh, at the height of their population, about how many have inhabited our state? So wonderful question. Turkey biologists have been trying to answer that for years. They're pretty secretive (laughs) birds. We don't have great ways to estimate populations other than we look at um, brood counts, how productive they are in the springtime or summertime. And then we look at winter flock counts, how much, how big those flocks kind of fluctuate from year to year. So our peak was probably in the early 2000s. And since then, our populations have been declining and not just in Iowa, but in all a lot of other states of the eastern wild turkey range. And so that's got turkey biologists a little bit concerned about what's what's occurring on the landscape that's causing those populations to decline. Mm-hmm. And what are the guesses about why they're declining? Well, the, the standard one is always habitat loss. Um, predators are always part of the issue. But we've also got a, a disease on the landscape now that's new um, to the United States, and we don't know what that impact will be on wild turkeys. Um, so we're trying to do some research on that as well. And, and our turkey hunters stepped up a couple of years ago and supplied uh, the DNR and Iowa State University with over a thousand samples from harvested wild turkeys that we were able to analyze and look for this disease across the state. Mm-hmm. When can wild turkeys be hunted in Iowa? Yeah, so that's a great question. Traditionally, when we think about pilgrims, that we harvested wild turkeys in the fall. And that has always been the standard for most states is to do a fall harvest. But the big time to hunt wild turkeys in most states now is in the springtime. And we're taking advantage of the spring mating season that, in reality, the hunter is acting like a female turkey, and we're trying to attract that male turkey to us. And so in the spring, you're only allowed to harvest those male adult wild turkeys. Do you impersonate a a wild turkey during mating season ever? Absolutely, yep, because we're trying to trick. And I always tell people, we're trying to... We're trying to fool Mother Nature, and we know how smart she is. So we're acting like a hen, and we're trying to get that male wild turkey to react to that call and come to us. Now, the fun part about that is is that's the absolute opposite of nature. In nature, the male turkey gobbles, and the hen comes to him. So as hunters, we're trying to turn, and that's what makes the tricky part of hunting wild turkeys exciting. Yeah. Can you do that call? Oh, no, no, no. You're not going to trick me into that. <laughs> I, I can do it if I have my tricky calls, but I am not a voice caller. There are some people that are really good at calling with their voice, All but right. I am not one of them. It's interesting that they've inhabited, uh, come to inhabit and populate not just sort of the, the wild uh, forested areas of Iowa, uh, but also, as my encounter showed uh, in the middle of um, Iowa City, uh, they can inhabit urban areas uh, can they be aggressive? What should you do if you encounter a wild turkey, as I did? Yeah, so like you were talking about, and what you probably encountered could have been, it had been like in, in Des Moines this year, is those young males, those males that are two or three years old, become very territorial, and they like to show off a lot. So they tend to act more aggressive than they really are. Um, and when they are aggressive, usually isn't their own reflection. So reflections in windows or shiny car fenders, things like that, because they want to defend their territory against other male turkeys. They're just not smart enough to realize that reflection is themselves. Mm. So in Iowa City, you know, you have quite a bit of mature timber. You have quite a bit of riparian or river systems that flow through, which allows turkeys to move through the state on those river systems when they're dispersing. And then they find places where they're basically protected and they do quite well. Yeah. And so if you come across them, I guess it sounds like you treat them the same way you, you, you treat a goose. Uh, they can be 
they can be <laughs> a little hard to deal with sometimes. Well, you always want to give any wildlife its space, you know, and we all learned that as a kid is we don't poke things with a stick and we don't put it in a corner. And so anytime we in, in, encounter any wildlife, we want to give it its space. And if it is acting aggressive, we're going to try to make ourselves look big. We're going to try to, you know, dominate it. But we don't want to pursue that aggression. And most wild turkeys are just content to be walking along and pecking and doing things. So they're really not going to bother you. But if you sneak up on them and scare them, then they could become a little bit more aggressive as they try to escape. Yeah, is the wild turkey population a, a a good lesson for what our conservation can do here in the state? It reminds me of bald eagles. You know, when I was a kid, they were nearly gone from the state, and now I can see any number of them on one day. Absolutely, and and that's the things that you know we take for granted. Sometimes we have to remember that some of those species that we maybe consider to be um, overpopulated now, like white-tailed deer or Canada geese or turkeys, um, in some cases were extirpated. They were gone from our landscape and conservation efforts brought those back. And now the real challenge is managing those populations, not just for biological carrying capacity, but the sociological carrying capacities. How many do the people of Iowa want on the landscape? And that's really the challenge for the DNR is maintaining healthy populations, but keeping them in check with what people want on the landscape as well. Okay, Jim Coffey, thanks for all the info on wild turkeys. Uh, Jim's with the Iowa DNR in their uh, wild uh, wildlife research staff. Thanks, Jim. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of this News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News um, on this December 2nd, 2022. Here to protect us, to safeguard us from listening to the same musical hits again and again. Ladies and gentlemen, Tony Daner, IPR Studio One Tracks host. How'd you like that for a wind-up, Tony? Ben, that was possibly the nicest way of saying DJ I've ever heard. (laughs) (laughs) You've got a couple of tunes to ring us out uh, of this edition, don't you? I do. And uh, this first record we're going to hear from, uh, not only is it a great record, it just warms my heart that it exists at all. So the artist is named Seth Avid. He is one of the Avid brothers. His new solo record is out. It's his first in five years, and it's called Seth Avid Sings Greg Brown. It is all cover songs of our own Greg Brown, the legendary Iowa singer-songwriter who's playing his final concert in uh, Iowa City this coming February. And I found a really nice quote by Seth Avid talking about Greg Brown. He says, there's an autobiography throughout his 40 records, but he's speaking for us, like all the great authors and poets speak for us. Seth Avid on Greg Brown right there. What a great quote, and uh, now let's hear a song. This is Seth David doing Greg Brown's Good Morning Coffee. Here's your coffee, it may still be too hot, it is fresh, labored. I'll just pour myself a cup and then I will crawl in with. Tony, if there uh, was a voice uh, unlike Greg Brown, that is it. Seth Avid there singing a Greg Brown favorite, uh, Good Morning Coffee. Nice pick. I love that version. You've got one more tune for us today. Yes, this is uh, 
a new-ish record. It's been out for a couple months, but uh, kind of busy the last couple months, Ben. Lots happened, so we're kind of getting around to it now at Studio One. But this is the debut album from the duo of Planes, two singers who have been around for a while, uh, Jess Williamson and Katie Crutchfield, who you might know from the band Waxahachie. They've been friends for a few years now, and uh, Katie Crutchfield, near the beginning of the pandemic, was ready to try something new. She had just put out a Waxahachie record. So she and Jess Williamson got together on these songs. They didn't write the songs together, though. They each sent each other some songs and said, hey, tell me what you think, and then they mm-hmm. traded off the lead vocals, kind of pushed each other on out of their songwriting comfort zones a little bit on uh, on some of these songs. And uh, so the result is this debut album from Plains, P-L-A-I-N-S. It's called I Walked With You A Ways. And this is one of the earlier songs on this new Plains album. It's called Abilene. We don't need to talk about Abilene. Cause Abilene don't mean no couple acres, no screened in porch. So I don't talk about Abilene no more. We're listening to Abilene by Plains from the album I Walked with you away. It's nice pick uh, there as well. Tony, remind us quickly as we listen to Abilene on the way out, uh, how we can tune in uh, to IPR Studio One. Yeah, Studio One tracks Monday through Saturday night, that is, at 7 o'clock. And then Studio One All Access, Saturdays at 1 o'clock. We re-air that one Sunday night at 7. Okay, thanks again, Tony, for grooving us into the weekend. Thanks, Ben. River to River, produced by Danny Gere, Caitlin Troutman, and Samantha McIntosh. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Have a wonderful weekend. Texas in my rear view, planes in my heart. Support for IPR comes from Patrick Furry Law, a business law firm offering technology agreements, intellectual property law, privacy law, and more. Proudly supporting quality local journalism. Online at patrickfurrylaw.com. Couldn't hold it together when Abilene fell apart. We don't need to talk about Abilene.